Well, tonight we're going to study a special book of the Bible in this series. We're going through Getting to Know the Old Testament. And I can say that every night because every book of the Bible is special. They're all inspired by God. They're all masterpieces of literature. They're all profound in their impact. And the book we have for tonight fits that bill as well. But it also stands out. It's like the closest the Old Testament gets to a, the happily ever after story or a knight in shining armor story. And we're talking about Ruth. So if you haven't already, you can open your Bibles there now. Find your way to the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth is no fairy tale. This is true-to-life history for Israel. And the real story is not any of Ruth or any of the other characters. The real hero of the story is God, who is seen to be sovereignly working to preserve and bless his chosen people. But Ruth is so memorable for its small cast of loyal upright, steadfast characters. This world is marred by sin, and Israel, even though they were the chosen people of God, was no exception. Darkness covered the land of Israel, but Ruth and her characters shine like a ray of sunshine through dark clouds. It's a bright spot, highlighting themes of steadfast love and redemption. And think about our own sin condition before God. That's the only hope we have is his steadfast love and redemption. And we see these themes in a big way in Ruth. Ruth takes place in the time of the judges. Look at the opening verse. It says, now it came about in the days when the judges governed. Hopefully you were here with us last week. We had our solid introduction to the book of Judges and the time of the judges. And we learned, and if you weren't with us, we'll remind you how, how those days should be characterized the time of the judges in between Israel taking the land and the time of the kings. You had 300 plus year of, of the judges ruling and governing. What was that time like in Israel's history though? How might we characterize it? I don't know, words like lawless, depraved, idolatrous, adulterous, chaotic, immoral, unbelieving, wicked, apostate. I'm not thinking of good terms here. It's mostly a, a negative time. Israel was supposed to be a holy nation set apart from all the wicked nations around her, entirely devoted to the pure worship of the one true God. But Israel quickly went astray. Just a couple of generations after taking the promised land, they're already going off the deep end. They're more resembling the nations around them. In fact, we saw at the end of Judges how Israel sunk into some of the worst depravity imaginable, going far beyond the nations around them. If you do recall, the book of Judges ends with what's sometimes called the Bethlehem Chronicles. Judges chapters 17 through 21, the final five chapters. We get these three episodes from the days of the Judges. And they just highlight the total depravity of Israel. And the author repeats this refrain at the end of Judges, which tells us what to make of the situation. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Yahweh was supposed to be their king, but Israel had rejected him. In God's mercy, though, he was going to raise up for his people to lead them back to faith and righteousness. He was going to raise up a righteous king, a man after his own heart, to lead his people back to faith. That king would be who? David. We know that. David. Recall, where was David born? Bethlehem. 
David became this young man of great faith. Even as a youth, we see him having a strong, resolute, stout faith in Yahweh. Where'd that come from? You know, reading Judges, you get the impression that nothing good could come out of Bethlehem. These people are are so faithless, so depraved. Well, the book of Ruth, in a way, bridges that gap and gives us that the lineage of faith that led to David. Ruth 1.1, it came about in the days when the judges governed. There was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So we're immediately introduced in those same days. This is really the fourth story in the Bethlehem Chronicles, only it's the book of Ruth. It's almost a continuation, but it's it's going to be a radically different story. We've got a couple from Bethlehem. This story will tell us what happens to them. It mostly centers on Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. But contrast to the other Bethlehem stories from the end of Judges, this is not a story of faithlessness and depravity. This is not a story of wickedness and idolatry. It's just the opposite. It's a story of, of faith and faithfulness. And Ruth is a glimmer of hope that in the days when there was no king in Israel, there, there was still a remnant of true believers, faithful believers who followed God as their king, who did what was right. You read Judges, you learn how Israelites were leaving the worship of Yahweh to follow other gods. You read Ruth, you find this Moabite woman leaving her gods to follow Yahweh. You read Judges, you wonder how anyone of true faith could survive this period of apostasy. But you read uh, Ruth and you realize, you know, God really does always have a remnant. No matter how bad or dark it gets, he always has a faithful remnant. Naomi and Ruth are part of this lineage of those who trust him and, and fear him. We learn by the end that King David, David was part of the same lineage, being a descendant of Naomi and Ruth. And that, of course, means so was Christ uh, himself being the great son of David. In all, we, we need a book like Ruth. Ruth lets us know it wasn't all bad. In a time that seemed all bad, God was still good. He's still faithful. He's working in a remnant of people. That remnant, in turn, proved to be good and faithful, which is to God's grace. But that gives us hope that even in dark times, kind of like today. God's still at work. His his sovereign plans are never derailed, and he still aims to use that remnant of good and faithful people to bring about his greater purposes, his greater will. And uh, we see that as a huge theme in Ruth. You know, through seemingly insignificant events, God sovereignly works to bring about his perfect plan. That's Ruth in a nutshell. That's still what he's doing. There's a lot to learn here. This is just introduction. We need to get into it. So let's begin. We start as we typically do with some basic background to help you get to know the book of Ruth. Some basic background. Starting with the title. The title is Ruth. That goes for the Hebrew book uh, and and the Greek book as well. She's always been known as Ruth. It's interesting though because Ruth, she's not really the main character. When you think about it, Naomi is really the main character. This book It's really told through Naomi's eyes. When you read it, it's really from Naomi's perspective. She's mentioned first in the book and last. Her husband died. Her sons died. Ruth is 
her daughter-in-law. She returned to Bethlehem. It's her God, her relative Boaz, her land to sell, her descendant. Really think about it. Naomi is a prominent character. We'll see that more at the end. But Ruth still gets the attention. It's named after her. And Ruth, along with Esther, the only two books of the Bible named after women, but they play a special place, or they have a special place. Now, in the English Bible, Ruth is placed after Judges for chronological reasons. The, the order of the books of the Bible is not inspired. That came and went with tradition. The Jewish Bible had a different ordering to the books. And Ruth was not up front, not part of the beginning, rather part of the end of the Jewish Bible, uh, a section called the writings. You know, had the law and the prophets and then the writings. Ruth is part of the writings. Specifically, the Jews grouped five books together and called them the, the Megiloth or five scrolls. And that was Ruth, Esther, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes. And the rabbis would read these five books on different special occasions throughout the year. And Ruth was always read at Pentecost because of the reference to the harvest. Now, who, who wrote the book of Ruth? The author? We don't know. It's not mentioned. It comes to us as an anonymous writing. There's no real internal or external evidence to find an author. Jewish tradition has pegged Samuel as the author. And again, that, that could be the case, but we just don't know for sure. Whoever wrote it, though, was a master storyteller. Ruth has been called just the greatest short story ever written. The audience to Ruth, essentially the same as Judges. This book is written to Israel, for Israel, like Judges reflecting back on the time of Judges. Judges was written more pessimistically as a warning not to repeat the apostasy of those days. Ruth, a little bit more encouraging that even in dark times, God is still sovereignly working. Now the date, when was it written? Again, we don't know. It's reflecting back on the time of the judges. It ends with the genealogy of David. So at least written at the time of David, that seems likely. Regarding the date of these events, the book ends with the genealogy of David. And so you can kind of work that backwards. We know when David reigned, 1011 through 971 BC. So You work backward from David's genealogy here, and we can generally place the events of Ruth in 1126 to 1105 BC during the judgeship of Jair. One thing that might resonate with you more is that you look at the genealogy, you can put together that that David was Ruth's great-grandson. There's a few at the church who have great-grandchildren And just imagine Ruth there with her great-grandson David. If she was still around at the time, we don't know. But that's a connection just a few generations later. And lastly here, when it comes to basic background, what's, what's the setting of Ruth? The setting? Again, we know it's during the time of the judges. Geographically, it's a little more important. It takes place starting in Judah. They're in Bethlehem. But because of this famine, they go to Moab. Moab is important to, to know when it comes to Ruth's background. Eli Melech and Naomi sojourn in Moab for a time. That's where Ruth comes from. And that's a key point, not to be missed. It's kind of subtle, but Ruth is not an Israelite. She's a Gentile. She's a Moabite woman. She's a foreigner. And she started off as a pagan. Moab was a kindred people to the Jews. 
They were descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew. So like distant cousins of the Israelites, you could say. And they occupied the territory on the other side of the Dead Sea, opposite Judah. Not part of the Holy Land, just outside of it. So you have the Holy Land and Judah's at the south at the Dead Sea and just on the other side. He sailed to the other side in the south. It's the land of Moab. And during the time of Moses, the Moabites opposed Israel. And you might remember as Balak, king of Moab, he wanted to curse Israel through Balaam. Later though, Moab would be a refuge when Saul or when David was fleeing from Saul. And during the time of the judges, the Moabites oppressed Israel for 18 years. They were delivered by the second judge, Ehud. Now though, by the time of Ruth, it's a it's hundred plus years later. And we just get the impression, Moab, they're not a close friend of Israel. They're not a bitter enemy of Israel. Kind of like a neutral terms. It's safe enough for Eli Melech and his family to go to Moab from Judah to ride out this famine. And that's the setting of Ruth. Now let's move on to the structure or the outline of Ruth. It's four simple chapters and they really read like a four-part play. It really does. And that's why it's been adapted to plays and films. You know, the, the first part is the setup, the character development. Chapter two is the rising action. Chapter three, the climax. Chapter four, the, the resolution, the falling action. It's pretty straightforward. If you want a simple outline, chapters one, two, three, and four, Ruth's resolve, Ruth's rights, Ruth's request, Ruth's reward. Can't say that too fast because I will stutter. That's a hard one. But her resolve, her rights, her request, her reward. And the best way really to get to know Ruth in all these books of the Bible that we're going through is just to read them. We don't have time to do that. I am leaving that to you. And I do issue that challenge. You know, it's kind of a lot, but we're setting these books of the Old Testament. I challenge you to, to try and keep pace and read through them. Even if that's several chapters a night. With Ruth, it's, it's kind of easy to do. It's just four chapters. And we still don't have time to read it here. That, that really is the best way to get to know these books. Just read them. When was the last time you read Judges or you read Ruth? If it's been a while, just go do some extra reading. We can't read it here, but I still want to do a bit of a play-by-play to really bring you up to speed. It's short enough where we can do this, and you'll see how that will really help us pinpoint the purpose. That's really what I try and get through to you with these getting-to-know-the-Old-Testament studies. I don't just want the basic facts and background. Yeah, we'll cover some of that. That's nice. But I want to help you really drill down on the inspired purpose. All these books of the Bible were written for a reason. They have a a purpose in God's plan, in his canon. And that's what I want to help you see. So let's kind of pace our way through the highlights of Ruth. And that'll help us uncover the purpose. So open again to Ruth 1 or just turn there. Let's go through some things. We had the setting in verse 1 again. It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. We find their names in verse 2. Eli Melech is the husband. The wife is Naomi. Eli Melech, the name in Hebrew means my God is king. Not without significance. In this, this showing that we have a devout family. In the days when there was no king in Israel, Here's a family and a man who's named, my God is king. It was a devout family. 
They have two sons. They go to Moab because of the famine. But then there's trouble. Verse 3. It says, then Eli Melech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. She becomes a widow in a foreign land. At least she has her two sons to care for her. Verse 4. These two sons marry Orpah and Ruth. They're in Moab for 10 years. A decade passes. But then there's more trouble. Verse 5. It says, then both Malon and and Kilian also died. Those were the husbands. They died. Or I'm sorry, those were the sons. Their two sons. And it says the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. I mean, I thought of this before, but Naomi's like a female Job. She just lost her husband, lost her two sons. She's destitute, penniless, a foreigner. She's nothing left. And just a sad fact of life in the ancient world for women, for widows especially, it's, it's just hard to survive. You can't labor hard in the fields. You're prone to being taken advantage of without uh, their, their husband or, or someone to provide for them. They were just going to have a hard life. They were going to suffer. It's just hard to scrape by an existence in a, in a brutal ancient world. And so after this, Naomi determines to go back to Judah. The famine's over. There's nothing more for her in Moab. And so she tells her two daughter-in-laws, just go home, basically. Go back to your mothers. Go back to, I'm just your mother-in-law. Go back to your families. Why stay with me? Just, she releases them. Go back to your, your country. She's going back to Judah. Why should they suffer with Naomi? Look at verse 12. She says, return my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And she she tells him to to go home. But there's different reactions. Verse 14 says, And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We don't know anything about Ruth yet, but we're about to. The different response, she clings to her. The first hint of Ruth's character, one of devotion and loyalty and steadfast love. What we learn in verse 15, Orpah returned to her people. She returned to her gods, it says. But Ruth did not. And this is the difference, verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord, Yahweh, do to me and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. This is Ruth and her character. The definition of steadfast love, loyalty. That, that passage is read at some weddings. It, it doesn't have marriage in context, but it's, it's a passage of it's one of the strongest words of loyalty and commitment in the Bible. She determined to stay with Naomi over these 10 years. She had come to love her more than her own family. She had come to know Yahweh, the God of Israel, and, and believe in him. So she was willing to forsake her family, her country, her gods, everything, and just follow Naomi join her and and her God. And so that's what they do. Off they go. They leave, go back to Jerusalem, back to Bethlehem. 
And they arrive in verse 22. At the beginning of the barley harvest, you get the first little hint of hope. Beginning of harvest. That's chapter 1. Now chapter 2. Verse 1, that the narrator, whoever's telling the story, gives us a, a little hint, a little clue. A little background info of what's going on. Verse 1. It says, now Naomi had a, a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Eli Melech, whose name was Boaz. We're being told this for a reason. There's someone close to them, uh, a kin. We'll see why we're being told that shortly. After this, though, they're back in Bethlehem. Ruth, it's harvest time. So Ruth determines to go into the fields and glean some grain during harvest time. And what that means is the harvesters are out. They're getting the, the lion's share of the harvest. And there's some scraps that fall down of, of wheat or barley. And they're just not even worth the time picking them up. They're, they're looking to a big scale harvest here. They don't care about the one or two heads of grain that fall to the floor. But, but the poor, the destitute would come after the harvest. And they would pick up all those little scraps. Because they're just trying not to starve. And they'll take it. And beat that into flour and have a piece of bread and not die. That's what they did to glean the fields. They're just trying to fend for themselves. So Ruth goes out to the fields to glean. What do you know? Verse 3. It says, so she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Who was of the family of Eli Melech. Just what a coincidence. Of all the fields she could have gone to, to glean, she just happens upon the field of Boaz, her, their closest relative. Now, literally in the Hebrew, it says she chanced a chance, but we know this was not by chance. Verse four, we get this intro to Boaz, Ruth chapter two, verse four. It says, now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. We, we, we learn our first hint of who this man Boaz is. He's a man of God. Yahweh is already on his lips. He's already talking of Yahweh. He's a man of faith. He's treating his workers with respect. He's not abusing them. He cares for them. See a man basically living out Old Testament law. He's equitable. He's, he's just. Boaz then inquires of Ruth. He hears the story. Everyone in town seems to have heard the story of Naomi and Ruth. We get that impression. The reapers all know about Naomi and Ruth. She's come back after 10 years. They knew Eli Melech, probably a prominent man in Bethlehem. And so they tell Boaz all about them. And Boaz feels compassion on Ruth. So he tells Ruth basically like, hey, just stick around. Don't move on to another field. Stay here in my fields. He commands his reapers to treat her well. Guard her because they were prone to abuse. Give her water. You know, let her glean as much as she wants. And at this point in the story, Ruth does not know who he is. And so she inquires why she has found favor. Down in verse 11, Boaz replied to her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and came to a people you'd not previously know. So he says, may the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel. 
under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Just in his response and, and the care he shows to Ruth, we see this man embodying God's own love, the steadfast love of the Lord. He's showing her the love of the Lord. After this, it goes on, Boaz continues to show Ruth favor and kindness, feeds her an extra meal, commands his servants while they're harvesting, basically says, hey, just, you know, on purpose, drop some extra grain from your sheaves. It's like, you know, let a little extra fall on the ground so that she could come and gather up even more. That evening, Ruth, she kept gleaning. There's so much she kept gleaning till the evening. And it ends and says she had an ephah of barley. It's basically like 30 to 40 pounds of barley she had by the end, like way more than you would get by picking up the scraps. Ruth goes back to Naomi, gives a report of her first day. Naomi is shocked how much barley she has, even more shocked to learn where she got it. In verse 20, the connection is made, Ruth 2. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who's not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. And again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He's one of our closest relatives. Connection has been made. We'll see why that's so significant. Well, in chapter three, a month goes by. The harvest continues. We get to Ruth three. You know, by the end of chapter two, One problem is solved. The problem of starvation and this conflict, this drama. They've found favor, food, sustenance. But the problem remains of a lack of an heir. And so Naomi determines to play matchmaker between Ruth and Boaz. More than that, what's going on here is she's tapping into this Old Testament custom from the law of Levirate marriage. Basically, the nearest brother to a deceased man was obligated to marry the widow, to redeem the widow and to redeem the lineage of his brother, to bear an heir through the widow by marrying her. And that inheritance of his brother would not be lost. It's a way of preserving family lines in Israel that God put into Old Testament law. That's what's happening here. It's the concept of a kinsman redeemer. And so verses three and four, Naomi tells Ruth what to do. Verse three, she says, wash yourself therefore and anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. He shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. Pretty much what every girl does when she wants to propose to a man, right? Just kind of find out where he's sleeping and throw a blanket on him or I don't know. But that Ruth obliges later that night, Boaz wakes up and he's shocked. He finds a woman lying at his feet. You know, verse nine, he said to her, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for you're a close relative. That's uh, basically a euphemism for her saying, will you marry me? And in our culture, the man asks the woman to marry the uh, marry him, but she's asking him essentially redeem me. She's she knows and is going to make the case. You're our kinsman redeemer. She's calling on him to redeem them. And this this uh, image of throwing your covering over your maid is is another image of basically rescue, redemption. How God Himself 
And Ezekiel is said to have spread his garment over Israel. It's a picture of protection and refuge. So she's calling on him to redeem. Verse 10, then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You've shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask for all my people in the city. No, you're a woman of excellence. We'll come back to that phrase later. Now, listen, despite some of the sexual innuendos in this passage, the author makes clear that nothing happened. They were upright. Ruth is leaning on this custom. That's what's happening here. She's asking Boaz to marry her based on this concept of a kinsman redeemer. And according to the law, he's the one who could do that. Just just so happened, she found the one who could actually redeem them and rescue them, produce an heir, preserve the line of Eli Melech. But there is a plot twist in verse 12. And Boaz is in favor. He, he is on board with this. He too is a single, he's an older man. He's still single. But he's, he seems to be in favor of redeeming and marrying Ruth. There's a plot twist, verse 12. He says, now it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a closer relative than I. And by the law, it had to be the closest relative he had to redeem. And if he refused, then the right passed to the next closest relative. So basically, this other closest relative, we have to go to him first, see what he says. He might be the one to marry and redeem Ruth by their law and by their custom. And so the the chapter ends, verse 18, Naomi says to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. At the beginning of the chapter, it was time for action. End of the chapter, all they can do is wait, see how this unfolds. In chapter four, we see what happens. It's another coincidence, although we know it's really providence, divine providence at work. Chapter four, verse one, It says, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. He turned aside, sat down. Another staggering coincidence, the relative just happened to be passing by. This relative doesn't even get name recognition in this story. He's refused a place in the story. He's not going to, it's not going to pan out. You already know. But Boaz gathers all the elders of the city to witness this decision. That's what they would do. They would bear witness to this. And he tells the relative first, hey, it's on you to redeem Eli Melech's land. They first talk about the land inheritance custom, which was true. And he says, you need to buy his land. Otherwise, I will and redeem it for his inheritance. And this relative says, okay, sure, I'll I'll buy the land. But then he, he's tricky. He says, oh, by the way, if you buy the land, you also have to redeem and marry Ruth and raise up an heir for her, for Eli Melech. He's like, not so fast. I didn't sign up for that. And long story short, or should I say short story shorter, he refuses the inheritance. He already has his own children. He's not going to split his inheritance. He refuses the right of inheritance. All the elders witness that the right passes lawfully to Boaz. That's basically what happens. And so the elders testify and agree down to verse 11. It says, all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. 
Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so they affirm this union. They affirm this right of redemption. And so it is. Verse 13 says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. She gave birth to a son. And there's redemption. There's resolution. Naomi and Ruth entered Israel empty, but now they're, they're made full. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, at first, these, these women of Bethlehem they wept with Naomi, who changed her name to Bitter. But now, what, what do they say? Blessed is the Lord, who's not left you without a redeemer today. May his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Again, Naomi went from empty to full, but all credit is given to Yahweh, God. Their God is the one who brought this redemption about. You think that's it? It's just a story of a couple of widows who find a, a happy ending, but it's not because the ending is the big reveal, that the real out of the blue punchline. Look down to verse 17. It says, The neighbor women gave him a name that a child is born. And saying, a son has been born to Naomi, an ancestor. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. <clears throat> and so, and the book ends with the genealogy of David. Going back to, by the way, Perez, the son of Judah by Tamar. Tamar was the founding mother of Judah, herself a Gentile woman like Ruth. The connection is made there. But, but the way the book of Ruth ends especially clues us in on, okay, now we see what's really going on here. Now we see what the story is really about from a divine perspective. And the purpose of this little tale. This is not just a story of marriage. Not just a, an ancient romantic tale. It's not just a story of a couple of widows. Although that, it is all that. But much more so, this is a story about God and what he's doing for his people. This ending tells us all that we need to know with the connection to David. So let's talk now about purpose. That's a little synopsis. Let's talk about the purpose of the book of Ruth in this you know, introduction. So we, we've got a synopsis down. It, it's not hard to pinpoint what's going on here. Now, horizontally... The purpose of Ruth is to establish the virtue of the Davidic line. Ruth is looking back to the time of the judges. In conjunction with the book of Judges, we know it's not a good time. The big problem that there was no king in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And that wasn't a good thing. There was, there was a lack of righteousness and faith. David, we know, would be different. He would turn things around. He would call the people back to faith. And righteousness in God. Israel needed a righteous king. And part of the purpose of Ruth. Is to show Israel. How David. Their great king. Came to be. To show the ancestry of his faith. Where did David. This random young adult. Kid. In 1 Samuel. Or in 2 Samuel. Where does he get. This great faith. Where does it come from? Well, we get a little window here. His faithful ancestors. There was a line that passed down true faith. But the purpose of Ruth goes deeper still. 
I mean, you might be tempted to focus on Ruth or Naomi or Boaz, even David as like the main characters, but they're not. The real main character is God. Ruth was written to tell us something about Israel's God. In short, Ruth was written to show how Yahweh subtly but sovereignly brought about the birth of his king through his faithful people. I'll say that again. It was written to show how Yahweh subtly yet sovereignly brought about the birth of his king through his faithful people. Let's kind of unpack that a little bit. The theme of God's sovereignty, it's, it's there. If you have eyes to see. First, let's look at the overt ways we see God's hand in Ruth. Going back to chapter 1, verse 1, the famine. Now this famine came upon the land by God's doing. And we learn in verse 6, it left the land by God's doing. Verse 6, it, it came to them. Verse, uh, in verse 6, we see how it, it, the famine left the land by God's doing. But just think, like, what would have happened if this famine never struck? Eli, Melech, and Naomi would have never gone to Moab. They're, they would have never met Ruth and Orpah. That, and this, and uh, essentially, David never would have been born. And same thing, if the famine never ended, there's no David. Same thing, chapter 1, verse 13. Even the affliction of Naomi, she sees as coming from the hand of the Lord. Even in suffering, we know, however, God is working things out for greater good and greater glory. I mean, indeed, Ruth turned out to be greater than seven sons. Her, her later state was greater than her first, but that never would have happened without her affliction. God sovereignly oversaw that. It goes into chapter 4, verse 13, where it says how the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. Ruth 1 does not explicitly call Ruth barren, but it's pretty clear. She was married to her first husband for 10 years and never produced an heir. It's pretty clear what's going on there. But later she marries Boaz and like has a child. Verse 13 tells us, though, the Lord opened her womb. You see, they may not have seen it, but God's hand was right there guiding these people and these circumstances toward an end. It wasn't time for her to have her child yet. And then you get down to chapter 4, verse 14, where it's, it's declared, the Lord has not left you without a redeemer. The coming of Boaz into their life to, to physically save them and, and give them a life that wasn't by chance, and that wasn't by Boaz. It was by the hand of the Lord. The Lord was delivering them. He heard the bitterness of Naomi. He saw the plight of Ruth, and, and the Lord delivered them through a kinsman redeemer. In addition to that, you have all the, the covert ways we see God's sovereign hand in Ruth. In chapter 2, verse 3, Ruth just so happened to glean in Boaz's field. Remember? Like she chanced to chance, it said, which is, you might say, tongue-in-cheek, but just so happened to find the right field of the one relative who could redeem her. And also chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz just happens to encounter the other relative passing by. And God's directing Ruth's steps to Boaz. He puts Boaz in a situation where he could redeem her. And then in chapter 4, verse 22, right, you get the end of the genealogy. We learn all these events were taking place according to God's greater plan. He's bringing about his will, his king. We see how God is providentially guiding people and events to bring about 
his ends, the birth of his special servant, David. God is really the great orchestrator behind the scenes in Ruth. You have insignificant people, insignificant events, insignificant circumstances, but God is using them to bring about something of great significance, David. And if we're going to go to David, we're going to go through David to Christ because David's lineage is Christ's human lineage. And when you bring in Christ, the greater son of David, all of these events are magnified a hundredfold in Ruth in their significance. If these things didn't happen, there's no David. And humanly speaking, there's no Christ. Of course, that would never happen because a sovereign God is providentially working to ensure these things happen. In all those years, God was silent while Naomi and Ruth were suffering, but that doesn't mean he wasn't there and he wasn't working. He was active. He's bringing about something greater on their behalf. And it's appropriate that in the end, Yahweh gets the credit. If God wasn't behind these events, they wouldn't have taken place. And so it's appropriate in chapter 4, verse 14, the ladies say, blessed is the Lord who's not left you without a redeemer today. There's no redemption without him. Naomi entered the land empty. Now she's been made full. And suddenly you have a little short story about a couple of widows, and it turns into a major part of Israel's history. And then through Christ, world history. Yahweh suddenly, but sovereignly brought about the birth of his king through his faithful people. Well, we got a little bit of time left. And one thing I want to include here is a, a special focus. Again, something we do in these background studies. I like to focus not on like a million themes, but like one theme or one special focus. And here for Ruth, as we wrap up, uh, I want to focus on the godly characters, the godly characters. And indeed, one reason Ruth resonates with so many people today is that it is filled with the, this small cast of upright characters. The book is about God. It's putting the steadfast love of God for his people on display as he providentially provides for his king. But in his providence, God brings that about through faithful, faith-filled people. And it's only right to see in them examples of godly character. And this is such a a contrast to judges because even most of the judges were not righteous men. They too were corrupt, but not so. Ruth, all of these characters give us examples of faith and virtue and righteousness. So let's look at the three, Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, real quick. So we see a, a little special focus on these godly characters. You know, first is Ruth. And we get from Ruth the epitome of hesed in Hebrew. It's the word for steadfast love or loyal love. She is the epitome of hesed. Go back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is Ruth saying to Naomi. She says, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. You know, back in chapter 1, verse 8, Naomi prayed that that God would show 
Ruth and Orpah chesed or steadfast love, that, that God would deal kindly with them, even though that she's been afflicted. But Ruth is the one truly to prove her own steadfast love to Naomi. And she was a foreigner, but she left her house, her family, her nation, her gods, all to show steadfast love and loyal love to Naomi. And just think, how many people today, how many ladies do you know named Orpah? Not Oprah, but Orpah. None. I'm just kind of curious. Does anyone know anyone named Orpah? But how many of you know Ruth? We got a, we got a Ruth Ann in the church. There's a reason for that. It's her character of steadfast loyalty and love just stands out and has stood the test of time. In addition, Ruth is a true picture of the excellent wife from Proverbs 31. And some even think that the author, King Lemuel of Proverbs 31, may have been thinking of Ruth when he wrote the excellent wife. In Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife. Who can find? Ruth 3.11. Boaz says, uh, all the people in the city know you are a woman of excellence. In the Hebrew, it's actually the same thing. Excellent wife, woman of excellence. The word woman, wife can go both ways. It's the same phrase. And really, Ruth is the epitome of that excellent wife. If you're not familiar, well, homework, go read Proverbs 31. But she fits that bill. In this case, if you happen to have a, a MacArthur study Bible, he gives a little list there. And it, I don't think it can be improved upon And when it comes to how Ruth epitomizes the Proverbs 31 woman. She's devoted to her family, delighted in her work, diligent in her labor, dedicated to godly speech, dependent on God, dressed with care, discreet with men, and delivered blessings. Naomi recognized Ruth's character. Boaz recognized Ruth's character. People of Bethlehem recognized her character. Scripture recognizes her character. It's right to look to Ruth, especially for women, to see really what God wants a woman of God to be. And then you have Naomi. And like we said before, she is really kind of like a female Job. And she lost everything. Just by the end of chapter 1, verse 5, she's husbandless, childless, penniless, in a foreign land. She's got nothing left, no hope, no future. She's older. But Naomi does not curse God like Job's wife. And Naomi, she doesn't even question God like Job. She has a high view of God's sovereignty. Naomi understands, we read in chapter 1, she understands her affliction has come from the hand of the Lord. But we don't sense that she is bitter towards God. She keeps her faith. She remains trusting him. Does she understand why the Lord has afflicted her? Surely not. Who does? We can't see the hidden counsel or plan of God, but she seems to just trust him. She does not abandon her faith or her trust in God. She continues to live in humble dependence on him daily, even later praising him for the little kindness of helping them meet Boaz. And from Naomi, we witness true faith. And we see the picture of faith under fire, but faith that perseveres nonetheless. Like all of us are going to suffer in this life. We're all going to be afflicted. It's a fallen world. But God will work all things out for good for those who love them. Naomi implicitly believed this 
And we see in her one who just never gave up her trust in Yahweh. She returned to Israel empty, but God made her full again. And so he'll deal with all of his children in the end, those who, who trust him. And lastly here we have Boaz. Let's do one more little character study of Boaz. And he's a special figure in his own right. First, just a note of his upstanding character. The first encounter speaks a lot. Chapter 2, verse 4. And I behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. They said to him, may the Lord bless you. We see a man, Yahweh is immediately on his lips. His workers are in good relationship with him. He's not oppressing them like some of the judges. He's generous with them. He's caring. We see a man living out the Old Testament law on justice. And then later, his interaction with Ruth. He treats her kindly and tenderly, like a daughter, wants to protect her and guard her. He's gracious to this lowly foreigner. We see Boaz as a man who shares the heart of God for the outcast, for the downtrodden. He goes out of his way to bless her. We also see in chapter 2, he's a man of faith. He trusts God. He points that out to Ruth. But Boaz's Ruth, or Boaz's role in Ruth is special for another reason, because beyond his character, in a way, he, he gives us, I might say, a little picture of Christ. With Boaz, we just get this vivid picture of a kinsman redeemer. He was literally a kinsman redeemer. Again, according to Deuteronomy 25, if a man died without having a son, his brother was obligated to marry the widow and bear a son with her. And that son was then considered the heir to the dead brother's household. And God made this provision in Israel so that families could not easily die out. Family lineage was essential to their, their culture and the covenantal blessings God promised the families of Israel. And so again, in the ancient world, a widow especially needed redemption. She needed care. It's, it's near impossible for a lowly foreigner widow to fend for herself and the harsh realities of life in the ancient world. But God provided for a kinsman to be her redeemer. That's the point of this provision in the law. And later in Israel's history, God himself would take on this title and this role that he is pictured as Israel's kinsman redeemer, you might say. Israel had forfeited their covenant blessings by their disobedience, but by grace, by an act of redemption, God can bring them back. He can redeem them. Boaz lives this out in Ruth's life as a real kinsman, though. But in doing, he really does go on to picture Christ, because in the person of Christ, we see God's heart as a redeemer, but since Christ, God took on human flesh, he became our actual kinsman, our, our brother, so to speak, a kinsman redeemer. In Ruth, through Boaz, you know, being inspired scripture, we also see God's heart of redemption for the world. Because it should not go, uh, um, you shouldn't ignore this fact, because in Ruth, who's actually being redeemed? Boaz is redeeming who with this right? It's a Gentile woman. We see just the fact that with this example, and by extension, God's heart of redemption, it's not, his, his heart of redemption is not just meant for, you know, male Israelites. 
We know for a fact women were meant to be included. 1 Peter 3.17, they're co-heirs of the grace of life, equally included in God's plan of redemption. But even more staggeringly in the Old Testament, that includes Gentiles. God's heart of redemption was always meant to include Gentiles. Ruth was a Moabite woman. But God made a provision for her to be redeemed and even be an ancestor of the Christ as well. And Christ, the greater kinsman redeemer, would come and show a special mercy to women and to Gentiles. Uh, We're thankful for that. Well, that's the book of Ruth, and we're essentially out of time. We, we want to save a little time for application, but we're out of time. I'll, I'll just mention in rapid-fire things as we close. I mean, I'll leave it kind of to you to dwell on further. But just these themes of redemption, a kinsman redeemer. We know from this side of the cross, from the New Testament, that the greater kinsman redeemer has come. Like these widows in this world of sin, we're lost and helpless. We are hopeless to survive without a redeemer, but... God has sent us a great kinsman redeemer to buy us, to rescue us, make provision for us. That's come in Christ. And so we should praise God for our kinsman redeemer. And also just to rest in God's sovereign care. Some people have a hard time accepting adversity in life. They want to question God or outright curse God when hard times come. As if God's unjust or unfair or doesn't care about them. But, you know, at least learn from Ruth. Give God a little bit more credit than that. Like, this world is cursed. So, yeah, we're all going to suffer adversity. But God's a redeemer. He's issued a promise to work all things out for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. But we see these characters, they didn't have Romans 8.28 to quote and rely on. But they still believed it. And they trust that truth. They witnessed that truth. In hindsight, they could look back and see, oh, I I see now God's hand was guiding us all along to this glorious moment. They couldn't necessarily see that in the midst of their suffering. That's what makes it hard to trust God when you're suffering. That's why it requires faith. But we see characters of true faith, and they were richly blessed in the end. God sovereignly cared for them as he does for all of his children. And so just learn to trust God. And rest in his sovereign care. He cares for you. If you're his child, he will deliver and rescue you and be with you as you have faith in him. And lastly, we can learn from Ruth a bit of encouragement to know that it's not all bad. When you read Judges, get the impression these times are so dark in Israel's history that there's no one left. There's no righteous believer left. But we're encouraged in Ruth to learn that there's a righteous remnant. God was preserving a righteous remnant. And he always will. He will keep faith alive on the earth. And the same is true today. Nationally, globally. It might seem to you like there's fewer and fewer who believe. And dark times might be coming upon us. But it's not all bad. God's still good. He's still working toward his glorious end. We know that to be the return of the Christ. And God has his people. There will always be a faithful, believing remnant, no matter how bad it gets. The final question to ask then is, is that going to include you? Are you committed to serving this God, knowing him, trusting him, being faithful to him, really no matter what happens out there in the world, in your life, just resting and trusting him and his son? 
And I hope we're all challenged by Ruth and by these characters just to be faithful to God. He's been nothing but faithful to us, especially in the sending of his son Christ. So may we be faithful to him and show him our own steadfast, loyal love. Well, that'll do it for Ruth for tonight. Let's end with a little word of prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for this special book of the Bible. They all are, but uh, Ruth uh, does have a special place in our hearts. Because we see this with a a profound story, a true-to-life story. Your heart, Lord, your heart for the lost, for the needy, for the helpless, for the humble and lowly. You are a God who redeems. And we thank you that you've looked upon our helpless state and that by your grace you were moved to compassion and mercy. And as Ruth was redeemed by a kinsman, so have we been redeemed by the great kinsman, the great son of David, Christ. You've sent a redeemer. And one who at great personal cost took our sins, bore the wrath due to us that we might enter hope and and enter new life, life everlasting. We see your hand in scripture, how you truly were working all things out for the coming of, of Christ, for the salvation of the world, for your plans of redemption. We don't have a Bible verse for our life to, to show us, to prove to us that you're still working. But same time, Lord, we don't need it. We see in your scriptures, just the truth. You are always at work. You always are working on behalf of your people. And you will work all things out for good for those uh, who love you and are called according to your purposes. May we be like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and, and trust in you just implicitly and explicitly trust in your character as a steadfast God of loyal love to his people. And in Christ, that's us now. And so Lord, help us and, and move in us to return that to you. May we display our own steadfast, loyal love to you, our God and our King. Thank you for the study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.